The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon. You're all very welcome to today's seminar here at the Long Room Hub. In this and and our third our second seminar which should be our third seminar but unfortunately we fortunately we had to cancel last week's seminar in our research seminar series in early modern history and it's a great pleasure to introduce today's speaker who is dr porrick higgins from mercer county college in new jersey though he comes today from his home in philadelphia um where it is snowing so i think dublin is certainly doing slightly better um today today on that count um Porrick, I think, will be familiar to many of you as an historian of late 18th century Ireland, best known in many ways for his wonderful 2010 book, A Nation of Politicians, Gender, Patriotism and the Irish Volunteers, and a winner of the University of Wisconsin Donnelly Prize, and a really exceptional, really important and exceptional book on that vital period. Since his work in the Volunteers, he has moved on publishing on Matthew Carey in Era Ireland and publishing and working also on late 18th century Dublin and specifically um, on the House of Industry. Um, and it is on that topic that he returns to today. Today, he has previously been a visiting fellow in the Long Room Hub, where we are, of course, remotely today, um, working on this project and, and associated projects. And he's returned to this project this year, um, and it is the fruits of that latest research that we're going to hear. And his title is The Chimney Doctor at Channel Row, the Dublin House of Industry in the 1790s. So I'm going to hand over to Porrick without further ado. And as always, just before I do that, I should just say that as always, if you have questions, please post them in the question and answers box at the bottom of your screen, and we'll get to the questions at the end of the talk. Um, so any questions, please post them there. And otherwise, I shall hand over to Porich. Well, thanks a lot, Patrick. Um, good morning, everyone from uh, snowy Philadelphia. I think you can see it pelting down there uh, behind me. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about um, a project I've been working on on the Dublin House of Industry and the broader uh, culture of poor relief in 18th century uh, Dublin. Um, so I'm going to share my screen with you first off. This works. In August 1797, a riot broke out in the Dublin House of Industry off North Brunswick Street on the northwest edge of the city. It began shortly after the governors of the house had left their well-appointed committee room built as part of a new house um, in the 1790s. Two of the governors had entered the main yard to fulfill their duties as visitors inspecting the state of the house when one of the governors was pelted with stones by inmates in a very desperate manner. Others threw a blanket over a second governor, knocking him down and dragged him around the yard, kicking and abusing him in a very savage manner. The house beadles eventually attempted to bring the situation under, the, under control, but the inmates could not be brought 
to order and subjection. The standoff lasted until hunger eventually convinced inmates uh, to end their protest, at which time they acknowledged their offence and promised amiability in the future. Now, as we know from a lot of recent work, riots were fairly common in 18th century Dublin as forms of collective action and popular protest, or anti-taxation riots, journeyman demonstrations, political protests, such as those for free trade, food riots, and even riots against the taking up of beggars uh, to be brought to the House of Industry. But what caused this riot in 1797? On one level, it was a type of food riot. It had been caused by a programme of dietary reform introduced by the governors of the house, and more specifically, the addition of bread to the inmate soup. This had begun when it was discovered by the vigilance of the new governors that numbers of the poor of the house had sold the bread they received for their allowance, and with the money, purchased spirits for their injury and intoxication. In order to prevent this perversion of the charitable allowance, it was reported that the portion of bread formerly given in a dry substance is now put into each noggin. This has totally destroyed the common practice of commuting it for whiskey. So the riot was over the addition of bread, or more specifically uh, croutons, uh, cubes of fried bread, to the house soup. It was over attempts to control alcohol in the house. It was also over the introduction of soup as a staple of the dietary of the house in the 1790s. But in broader terms, um, I would argue that the riot here was a, a response to changes in workhouse discipline and diet based on changing attitudes to the, the workhouse poor in the 1790s. This change was partly prompted by the ideas of Count Rumford and his visit to Dublin in 1796. And I'll say more of that later, and that will also help explain uh, my somewhat obscure title uh, for this talk as well. Now, given the centrality of the workhouse and studies of Irish, uh, the Irish Poor Relief Act of 1838 and the Great Famine, the historiography of the 18th century workhouse in Ireland is curiously underdeveloped. The construction and administration of 19th century workhouses has been examined by Peter Gray and others, while Alwyn Perdue and others have also looked at the experience of the workhouse and forms of resistance. There's also been a great deal of work, of work on 18th century workhouses in England, Europe and America. For Ireland, apart from some institutional histories of hospitals, we really only have David Fleming and John Hogan's uh, publication of the register of the Limerick House of Ind Industry with, a, with an excellent introduction. But there's been surprisingly little written about this massive complex of hospitals and asylums that dominated the northwest fringe of Dublin uh, for, for so long, and particularly the early decades of the, of the House of Industry. Too often, the House of Industry in Dublin has been used as a barometer of the Dublin economy in general, rather than examined in its own right. In terms of the, the kind of broader historiography of the, uh, historiography of the workhouse, there's been a, a variety of interpretations of this, this early type of workhouse. Um, some historians have argued that it reflected a culture of civic benevolence and improvement. Others have emphasized its role as a form of social discipline. Much recent work, however, has focused on pauper agency, particularly the idea that the poor used the system of poor relief, including the workhouse, for their own ends. 
Tim Hitchcock and uh, Robert Shoemaker in a recent book on the London poor in the 18th century emphasized the importance of the tactics of the poor in responding to and shaping institutions and policies designed to deal with the problem of poverty. A pattern they see is the transformation of workhouses away from founders' intentions and towards users' needs. And we see this, uh, I think, quite clearly with the James's Street workhouse, um, a, a good example of this shifting from a workhouse to a found, foundling home by the mid 18th century. Historians have also moved beyond examining the institution itself to try to connect histories of the workhouse with other types of histories. And they, they've ranged here from themes uh, such as old age and the workhouse, medicine in the workhouse, childhood, mental illness and disability, as well as in some studies, gender and race and the workhouse. Here, I wanna look at the intersection between social discipline and agency and ask what were the everyday tactics of the Dublin poor in the 18th century in response to the poor relief strategies of the elite and their attempts to discipline and confine them? What can we know about the nearly 100,000 men, women and children who willingly or reluctantly entered the house between 1773 and 1800? And what can we know of the tactics they adopted to make life tolerable for themselves? In the house, while staff endeavored to maintain order and discipline, inmates resisted the discipline, uh, resisted this discipline and their negotiation over the rules and the limits of pauper agency in the house. There were a variety of ways that the poor could do this from grumbling, formal petitions, smuggling in drink, theft, refusing to work, engaging in shoddy work, uh, verbal or physical attacks on the staff, riot, or ultimately elopement or escape. But here, I wanna focus on food in the house, the dietary in the house, the role, of, the role of food in maintaining discipline, inmates' response to the dietary, and changing ideas about food in the house over time. Before I get into that, I, I want to place the house um, in its Dublin context, just to, just to kind of locate it um, in, in the city. The push for the House of Industry came in the 1760s, when Richard Woodward, the Dean of Clogher, wrote several pamphlets advocating a national system of workhouses. In his writing, he outlined a hierarchical paternalistic vision of society, noting what he described as the rights of the poor. This is his uh, second most famous idea after uh, Protestant ascendancy. And this was a right to subsist that emphasized the duties of the property to provide for the poor in times of dearth. Largely thanks to his tireless promotion, a new corporation for the relief of the poor and for punishing vagabonds and sturdy beggars was established by statute in 1772. From its inception, the Dublin House had a charge of what was described as both charity and police. This was largely in line with Wood Woodward's vision. That is, it would provide relief for the destitute and deserving poor, while also taking up sturdy beggars, prostitutes, the undeserving and criminal poor, and incarcerate them in the house. Um, and many of these are depicted in uh, Hugh Douglas Hamilton's Cries of Dublin from um, 1760. There's a number um, of beggars depicted in this in this uh, in, in his in his drawings um, and in uh, people in beggar uh, adjacent trades as well. Uh, Kira McCabe has, has recently published a, a, a fine book on, on, on begging in the streets. Um, so I'm going to examine uh, matters uh, within the house um, in this talk. 
The original House of Industry was located in a disused malt house on Channel Row, uh, as, as it was called then, on the northwest edge of the city. The map, or the, the, the corporation offered no reason for choosing this site. Uh, they previously examined um, a site in Oxmantown Green, but the, the, the area already accommodated several other charitable institutions, including uh, the Blue Coat Boys Hospital and uh, the Ams House for, for Widows, which you can see um, in this. Um, this, is, uh, this is Roke's uh, 1756 map of, of Dublin. Um, and Channel Row itself, itself housed a Dominican nunnery and a school popular for the education of the daughters of the Catholic nobility. The structure that dominated the area, however, was the Royal Barracks, uh, which could house up to 4,000 men and 1,000 horse. The president of the barracks, um, as David Dixon has noted, created a new micro-economy in the surrounding district, enhancing the role of Smithfield directly south of Channel Row as a cattle and hay market. The market was surrounded by slaughter yards and other supporting trades related to cattle. And this is the market metropolis that Juliana uh, Edelman writes about in her new book on animals in, in, in 19th century Dublin. While there have been efforts in the early 18th century to build a fashionable area around Smithfield, then, as today, the area stubbornly resisted gentrification. It wasn't uncommon, uncommon to place workhouses in morally dodgy or otherwise undesirable locations, and due to the presence of the barracks and the markets, by this period, the area was densely packed with taverns and whiskey shops and was associated with uh, prostitution and crime. To the north of Channel Row were the pastures and orchards of the relatively undeveloped Monk Estate, which would provide an opportunity for the massive expansion of the House of Industry site in the 19th century. So that's the general uh, area that the house was located in. And this map shows you, this is from the, the, the pool and cash map from 1780. This is the first map, I think, that shows the house um, of industry on Channel Row. You can also see that um, Newgate is depicted on this map. New, Newgate was built, I think, between uh, 1773 and, and 81. So it, it, it was built around the same time as the House of Industry opened. And when it opened in November of 1773, a table of rules was hung on the wall. Inmates were, it noted, quietly to submit themselves to the rules and orders established by the government of this house. And the governors were eager to emphasize what they described as the compassionate severity of the discipline in the house. They noted that those who voluntarily entered the house were immediately discharged upon application to the board, and that those who were compelled to enter were detained no longer than required by the act of parliament. There was no ground, they alerted the public, for the assertion that the house of industry is a place of perpetual imprisonment, as some critics had claimed. The 18th century workhouse was a more porous institution than its 19th century descendant. While the doors were locked at night, during the day, comings and goings were frequent. Inmates could visit friends, attend to chores, raise money through begging or other more legitimate means. And in 1774, the governors complained about the passing of the poor out of the house and the admission of improper persons providing uh, spiritous liquors to the inmates. Crowds descended on the house for visitors day on Sundays, 
though after overcrowding led to the death of one inmate, visitor tickets were subsequently introduced, restricting admittance to 100 guests. The corporation also emphasized the openness of the institution, which was contrasted with other institutions that often required patronage to gain admittance. Its doors are always open, they wrote, without certificate or recommendation for the admission of the distressed and equally open when the admitted wish to leave. It receives the infant, the adult, the superannuated, and the stranger, the sick, whether afflicted with insanity, with acute, chronic, or incurable disease. So we should think of it here as a relatively um, open institution in terms of admissions and discharge, and also its, its comings and goings and interactions with the broader environment of the northwest part, this northwest part of the city. The provision of food was central to the daily routine of the house. Much energy was expended on procuring supplies and then preparing and serving meals. And this image just shows you a page from the minutes of the House of Industry, the, um, the accounts for the year of 17, um, 1780 and the purchase of um, um, various, uh, various types of food, potatoes, oatmeals, um, and so on. Inmates were provided with breakfast and dinner each day. In the early years of the house, the corporation claimed to provide a more than adequate diet in order to tempt the real objects of charity into the house, though this supposed indulgence would not last. A dietary committee was established to ensure the cost-effective distribution of food. This committee conducted various experiments to provide a thriftier diet for the different classes of poor in the house. In 1774, the physician for the house suggested the substitution of Kilcannon for cheese and peas pottage, while rice and milk replaced one of the meat dinners as part of a subsequent trial. The diet of the house was monotonous, if on the face of things, relatively nutritious. Industrious adults received a breakfast of one quart of thick oatmeal pottage and a pint of buttermilk each day. While there would often be seasonal variations in the early years of the house, dinner in general was more varied, including nine to 12 ounces of bread and a pint of beer most days, while potatoes with herrings, oatmeal with leeks, pea soup with ginger and broth um, were served on other days, with beef one pound in weight when raw without the bone was prepared on Sundays. That's based on a, a 1783 dietary that you can see um, up on the screen. Food was also a tool of discipline, withheld as a punishment or offered as a reward. In 1774, the, masters of, of, of work, the Master of Works was given the authority to provide smaller allowances of meat and drink to anyone he found lazy and indisposed to labour in proportion to their ability. In 1783, the dietary noted that the stubborn or lazy poor confined to the bridewell were to be put on bread and water. A few years later, John uh, Mannon and Bridget Doolan were put on half rations for two weeks for indecent behaviour. At the same time, inmates were particularly defensive of their right to adequate rations. In 1773, five pris prisoners in the Bridewell accused the keeper of failing to serve breakfast on time. In response, the governors emphasised or established a committee to investigate and conceded that inmates may from time to time tender their complaints in case of ill usage or hard treatment to the committee for investigation. In 1774, 
a petition was received by the governors from the inmates complaining about the quality and quantity of their rations. Dr. Rainey, after examining a number of witnesses, concluded that the allegations were entirely false and without foundation. Subsequently, Alice Rowe, who had initiated the complaints, was committed to the Bridewell for a day for complaining about the quality of her meat. Critics of the House, however, doubted that the stated quantities of food um, were, were really provided to the poor. John Clark, a member of the corporation, published a damning account in 1791 of the incorrigible management of the house. He claimed that at dinner, the greatest luxury of the inmates, they were only receiving half their allocated rations. This accusation was borne out in a more successful complaint by inmates when an anonymous letter was sent to the board alleging they were not receiving their allowance. Benjamin Houghton investigated and found the weight of meat provided at meals was deficient. One, Ber one Berkeley, a steward who had previously been accused of receiving bribes in the form of flour from suppliers, was discharged for defrauding the House of Provisions. So the inmates of the House defended their right to an adequate diet, but the official dietary was not the only source of sustenance for the House poor. There were small indulgences provided to make life in the institution more tolerable. Tobacco and snuff were given from time to time to the working poor of the house, especially those in the so-called lunatic cells, as it was believed to calm them. The dietary in the infirmary was also different to the rest of the house, with spirits and wine often prescribed for medicinal purposes. In 1797, nearly 200 pounds was spent on wine and spices for the sick. Along with stronger drink, the sick also often received better quality meat. In 1798, the new governors complained that in the infirmary, the diet was profuse, the consumption of wine enormous and unnecessarily expensive. Of particular importance in supplementing the diet of the poor were the premiums paid to inmates for the work performed in the house. This included various types of spinning, um, oakum picking, hemp beating, and so on. In 1778, the premiums for manufacturers was three half pence in one shilling of work. Those in menial offices were also paid. Bread cutters, for example, were paid six and a half pence per week. There were two uh, full-time bread cutters employed in the kitchen. In 1781, 156 pounds were paid out to inmates in the forms of, of premiums. By 1797, over 1,000 pounds was paid out per annum in, in premiums for manufacturers and 395 pounds was paid to those in menial offices. Some of these premiums were held back and given to inmates when they were discharged from the house. But some of the premium was given weekly to the inmates to spend as they wished. Inmates were not involuntary consumers of house fare, but provided they work, could make some of their own choices about what they ate and drank. And given the poorest nature of the house, inmates could spend this money on food in nearby taverns or from the sort of street, defend, uh, street vendors depicted again by Hugh Douglas Hamilton. And this shows uh, women selling uh, hot grey peas and um, hot pies, the sort of fare that would have been available on the street or uh, food would have been available from the nearby Ormond market. They also could prepare and cook food in their own dormitory at a fireplace. At least according to the governors, 
Much of this disposable income was spent on drink. The governors fought a long and seemingly fruitless battle against drinking by the inmates um, and staff inside and outside the house. In 1773, William Sadler was committed to the Bridewell for bringing in liquor, and this was followed by frequent inquiries into the availability of, of drink on the wards. They also dealt with problems in the streets around the house, particularly uh, with a huckster called Lynch on Little Church Street who sold whiskey to the women of the house. It was claimed that many came into the house merely to be clothed and then commuted this clothing for spiritous liquors um, with what they had gratuitously received. Begging badges were also believed to have been sold or traded for drink. So this brings us back to the addition of bread into the, the house soup, finally, finally got back to it. Uh, however, while the addition of bread into the daily soup was part of this war on alcohol in the house, it was also part of a broader campaign of reform in the 1790s. Indeed, the introduction of soup itself was part of this reform process. This reform was initiated in 1796 when Thomas Pelham, who had recently reluctantly resumed his position as chief secretary, presented a bill um, as, as MP for Clare for the better governing and managing of the House of Industry for the relief of the poor in Dublin. He created a new governing structure for the House with a board of seven governors. Particularly important in the reform of the House was Count Rumford, an inventor and reforming figure whose ideas on the practical organization of the workhouse were highly influential in Europe and America in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In April of that year, Rumford came to Dublin for several months at the invitation of Pelham, who had met him in England and adopted some of his ideas in organizing his local militia force. Rumford, originally Benjamin Thompson, was from Massachusetts, but had left America during the re revolution on account of his loyalism. He had moved to England and eventually wound up as advisor to Carl Theodore, a lector of Bavaria, who had given him his title. And he had gained some fame for his innovations in feeding and clothing the military there, taking up beggars, reforming the Munich workhouse, as well as designing more efficient stoves and um, improved uh, chimneys. So he, he had his hand in a lot of uh, different types of reform movements and inventions. He's, he's, often referred to as a, a loyalist, uh, Ben Franklin, in that regard. While in Dublin, Rumford visited a number of institutions, including the House of Industry, uh, the nearby Linen Hall, the Dublin Society on um, Hawkins Street on the south side, as well as some private residences to offer improvements on diet, cooking, ventilation, and even uh, bathing facilities. In May, Pelham wrote to his brother-in-law, the Earl of Sheffield, noting that the Count is going on most prosperously. He has got possession of the House of Industry in which there are 1,500 idle people, uh, miserably clothed and fed, but well lodged. So he has a fine field for his system. He has the finest field for his system that can be desired. Rumford's focus on promoting a rational approach to feeding and managing the poor based on quantification and statistics was influential among among improving elites in Ireland in the 1790s, as the patronage of Pelham and the Dublin Society suggests. A collection of his essays was published in Dublin to coincide with his visit, which covered the bewildering range of subjects he was interested in, including um, taking up beggars, feeding and employing the poor, improving fireplaces and stoves, 
heating water, the benefits of coffee, and the underestimated pleasures and nutrient value of chewing food slowly. In June, John Foster wrote to Sheffield observing, your friend Count Rumford is the admiration of all ranks here. His celebrity was such that by October of that year, a woman could write from Cashel that it would be a good thing to have the grate in the hall, which both smokes and consumes a great deal of coal, Rumfordized to keep warm the coffee and chocolate. At the same time, there was some mockery of Rumford and his fame. This is um, a Gilray uh, in, engraving from, from 1800 of Rumford, um, the, the, the comforts of um, the stove. And it depicts him as a, a relatively kind of transnational figure. He's wearing his Hessian uh, soldier's boots. He's got his uh, French uh, tricolor on his jacket. Um, and this, there's, it's, it's not exactly clear what, what Gilray is getting at here, but there might be some evidence that he's, he's mocking uh, the efficiency of Rumford's uh, stoves in, 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 in this image. Um, in, in Ireland, um, in her mem memoirs, Madame Leeson described Rumford as the pretended Count Rumford, the chimney doctor, and suggested he was a spy sent to Ireland and also to England by the French directory to feel the pulses of the two kingdoms. Playing off Rumford's writing on fireplaces and warm bathing, she noted that he had smoked us all and peeped into our private recesses. William Drennan also noted his suspicion that Rumford was a spy of the deepest kind, introduced by some means into all the superior circles and his, ost his ostensible purpose only to save our fuel and mend our fireplaces. Rumford's celebrity rested on his claims for the nu nutritious properties of his soup. Though not as well known as so Sawyer's uh, famine soup in Irish history, the low cost soup he devised for the poor comprised of potatoes, barley, salt, vinegar, and various vegetables, became a staple of workhouses throughout Europe and America. In terms of its nutritional value, as Rebecca Earle notes, while he provided detailed calculations of the cost of ingredients and fuel, his statements on the soup's nutritive values were not supported by such quantification. Rather, it was supported in much vaguer terms based on Rumford's long experience. Indeed, there was little agreement among 18th century commentators on what constituted a nourishing diet. In the 18th century, nutrition or nourishment was an embodied science dependent upon the body of the eater, usually meaning um, the laboring poor, rather than the, the, the chemical qual qualities of the food. Rumford calculated the cost of preparing his soup in great detail, but the soup, he noted, also had to be appetizing. The object most attended to in composing these soups was to render them wholesome and nourishing, he wrote, yet they are far from being unpalatable. The palatability or otherwise of the soup is debatable. But this is where the bread or fried croutons or fried bread croutons came in. Croutons, he explained, required extended chewing. Chewing was important, he wrote, because it prolongs the duration of the enjoyment of eating, a matter of very great importance indeed. He discovered this in observing uh, German soldiers chewing and the uh, prolonged enjoyment uh, that, this, that this supposedly gave them. He noted that the enjoyments which fall to the lot of the bulk of mankind are not so numerous as to render an attempt to increase them superfluous. Soup with its stale bread or croutons will provide both nourishment 
and pleasure for the poor, he believed. Rumford was also a particular booster of the nutritive qualities of the potato. In the Munich workhouse, the poor had such a strong aversion to potatoes that Rumford was required to sneak them into meals. In Dublin, he, for, he foresaw no such problem, noting that the greater part of the inhabitants of this country live almost entirely on this food, while also, he noted, cooking them the best way, uh, boiled with the skin on, of course. While in the Dublin house, Rumford engaged in what he called an experiment of preparing a dinner of Kilcannon, a kind of food in great repute in Ireland uh, for the 927 inmates. And he provided a detailed account of the ingredients, uh, the fuel that he used, and the other expenses, the labour expenses, and so on. He suggested improvements for the boiler and the fireplace uh, that could create considerable savings on coal. And while he noted that it would be hardly possible to invent a more nourishing or more palatable kind of food than Kilcannon, he also noted that with the same ingredients and fuel, he could have made a soup for three times as many people. So it was, it may have been a, a, a nourishing type of food, but it was um, inefficient. Rumpert's soup was enthusiastically adopted by the governors of the house. Um, and this, this just is uh, an outline of his um, soup ingredients. This is um, a version with out potatoes. Um, and you can see he goes into great detail in terms of um, cost, fuel, labor, wages, and so on. Um, this would have been a soup for uh, 1,200 people. Um, and this is soup number two um, with potatoes and bread, uh, cuttings of bread added to the soup. And this soup was enthusiastically adopted by the governors of the house who noted they derived infinite advantage from a perusal of the ingenious essays of Count Rumford and had adopted soup very similar to that recommended by him, but cheaper and more nutritive to feed the inmates. The press reported that his experiments resulted in considerable saving in the management of fuel, as well as providing a wholesome and cheap soup for the people. A Rumfordian approach to food focused on providing a nourishing diet at the lowest uh, possible cost per inmate, breaking down each meal to constituent ingredients, fuel and labour. Having engaged in a strict examination of the dietary of the house, rather than providing gratuitous support, the diet, the governors noted, was reduced to the standard by which the industrious labour can subsist in his own habitation at the lowest rate of wages. And they compared the cost of feeding the poor at the beginning of 1796 to um, feeding the poor in 1797, and they claimed they had driven down the cost of food from uh, 213, six and a half, to 110 and five pence uh, per, per annum. After Rumford's visit, the house was remodeled in a number of significant ways. Um, they created a bakehouse was built uh, for, for baking a cheaper kind of bread, while a vegetable garden was also created at his suggestion on some waste ground. They also built uh, two long halls for feeding the adult poor, um, along with galleries for the visitor to superintend the poor at their meals, to inspect the distribution of food and see that order is preserved. And um, apologies for my, uh, my, my, my fairly uh, amateur uh, representation of the, or attempt to colour in this plan with my daughter's crayons. Um, but in the middle there, you see 
the two uh, uh, halls for, for feeding the poor that Rumford had suggested they introduce in, um, in the yard that, that, that was um, his, his, at, at his instigation. By 1797, the diet of the house had changed. Breakfast for those capable of work still consisted of, of oatmeal or stirabout and buttermilk, but dinner was less substantial and varied. Oatmeal and bread, potatoes and buttermilk, cocannon and buttermilk. Soup made with oats, barley, peas and other vegetables, along sometimes with beef boiled into a pulp, noting that during the slaughter season in Dublin, the soup is made of ox head, was served based on Rumford's model several days a week. The bread of the house was also a target of reform. Rumford had suggested that, in, as he wrote, instead of rendering inmates dainty and spoiling them by giving them the best wheaten bread, inmates could be fed with oaten cakes. And the governors introduced a variety of mixed breads containing various proportions of oats, potatoes, rice, barley, and rye, along with wholemeal flour as cheaper alternatives to white bread. These trials, however, ignored vernacular models of nourishment held by the Dublin poor, who regarded wheaten bread, and particularly white bread, as especially nourishing. The governors, however, dismissed the taste of the inmates, noting that those who are fed by the industry of others have no right to choose. Rumford's scientific approach to poverty, poverty came to dominate in the diet of the house. These ideas were laid out in annual reports where statistics and tabular data were marshaled to demonstrate the economy of the diet. Profuse, profuseness of diet in establishments for the poor, it was stated, was one of the causes of the increase of poverty. In contrast, the diet of the house is not calculated in its quality to conciliate those who are accustomed to expensive and enervating articles of food, but to familiarize them to wholesome and nutritious substitutes. It aims only at furnishing bare subsistence. So here, the body of the consumer, the inmates of the house, is irrelevant in the face of the economy and supposed scientific ideas about diet. At the same time, other reforms were introduced beyond the dietary that Im impacted inmates' access to food and drink. The premium for labour was, Pelham noted, now to be paid in a coin current only in the house, which has effectively prevented the, the purchase of spiritus liquors, he wrote. A shop modelled on a village shop was opened where inmates could use their premiums, paid in this, this special coinage, to buy every article of humble luxury and innocent gratification. And that you see an image of the coin there uh, with, with the, 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 the motto um, engraved on it, by labour only we prosper. A class of merit was also created, providing superior food and lodging to those distinguished by superior industry, moral conduct and submission to the rule of the house. And they were awarded with articles of humble luxury, food which they could cook in their room at a stove based on Rumford's design. A class of demerit was, was also created, uh, punishing those um, who did not conform to the rules of the house, um, particularly by um, giving them less food. So to finish up, in the spirit of Rumford's ideas, the governors had added bread to the, to, to the soup, though, um, um, had added bread to the soup. This would not only prevent them selling the bread for alcohol, but also turn the soup into a more ample meal, or at least one that felt more nourishing. Rumford had warned of the difficulties which always attend the introduction of measures calculated to produce any remarkable change in the customs 
and habits of mankind. In introducing first the innovation of soup several days a week, and then adding bread to the soup, the governors had discovered these difficulties in the form of a riot. Adding bread to the soup destroyed bread, destroyed bread status as a commodity within the house, just as the introduction of a house currency limited inmates' ability to spend their premiums as they wished. Reform not only impacted what the poor ate, affecting quality and quantity, but also influenced their autonomy of movement, preventing them from coming and going in and out of the house, restricting visiting, uh, restricting the purchase of street food, and perhaps importantly, restricting access to alcohol. The riot reflected the inmates' response to these reforms, but also resistance to attempts to limit their bodily autonomy and limit their choices of consumption and freedom of movement. In these and other ways, inmates attempted to exercise some agency, their own version perhaps of Woodward's rights of the poor. And I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll be um, happy to take any, any questions people, people might have. I'll share my, my screen, I think. Excellent. Um, thank you very much, Porik. That was absolutely wonderful. And I think it's vast, vast amount to think about. And I think, so again, some wonderful images. And I think some interesting, certainly, I think, I think Rumford is absolutely fascinating. One of the things just to pick up and just as questions are coming in here, just, just on that final slide and on the in-house currency, does this, as you mentioned, restricting freedom of movement, does this also restrict freedom of movement as an escape from the house of industry that surely previously you could accumulate premia and then leave when you had you 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 had you had made something of yourself potentially inside but if you are so heavy on an in-house currency can, can that be transferable into into normal currency upon your departure yeah it's 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 not clear if it became a usable currency outside the house or not. I mean, the plan was that it, 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 it would not be. Um, mm. But the, you, you weren't given all your, your premium up front. Um, so you worked, and I think they, they, they paid you a third of your premium up front. And then when you were discharged from the house, you would receive the rest of your money. So that was supposed to prevent um, people from leaving the house from being destitute. That was the plan, at least. So I suppose, um, yeah, if, if, if you were being paid in, in, in the house currency, it might provide reasons for, for, for not escaping, for not eloping, I suppose. And presumably that has a precedent elsewhere that this is something that is borrowed from other systems. The, the, the house currency? Yeah, I, I have seen other forms of workhouse coins. So yeah, I'm not sure um, where, where they came up with it exactly. They, they don't talk about that in their, in their reports or, or or minutes, but I, I have seen other coins of, of a similar kind mm. from other workhouses. And now, um, just if anybody who has questions, if you want to pose them in the question and answer bar, or if you want to address them directly, do um, either stick, stick your hand with the hand function and I will get to you. Um, so anybody who just post questions in the Q&A bar or to raise your hand either. <coughs> I'm 
a question here from Martin Powell. I'm just trying to <coughs> locate. Question here from Martin Powell on debtors and agency. <coughs> Martin, over to you. Hi, Porig. Thanks very much for that. It was um, that was excellent. Uh, I think we talked about this this past possibly in uh, when you were on your fellowship in, in TCD, but um, but but similarities, I, I suppose, in, in intentions in in, in debt, debtors' prisons um, that, that 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 again illustrate the the agency that that individuals within would like to. Um, would like to ideally exercise um and and i suppose in debtors prison debtors prisons it's it's the their ability again to be able to go outside the prison and not be entirely reliant on um on 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 beer um or spirits that are actually brought in and um and forcibly sold to them so so i i i, I guess um it would be interesting interesting to know um, more about the the other kinds of institutions in in Dublin that that have similar tensions between between those 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 who who are are are, are I suppose semi captives. Um, Bridewell, you mentioned a Bridewell as well. There, there are obviously other other kinds of prisons too, um, and and the kinds of of agency, particularly around food, that, that those individuals are able to um, um, able to 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 exercise. Um, the, the other part of the question was was about was about alcohol again, and I note that that in your ninety seven menu, um, beer had gone from that. Um, from I think it was maybe present two or three days a week on the on the previous version, but then had gone completely. But by ninety seven, so to what extent was was beer uh, uh, and and its presence on 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 the menu also part of the um, also part of the tensions within the workhouse, and, and did it return? Yeah, that that's. That's a good question, actually. Um, beer in the in the 1770s and the 1780s, uh, beer was served to everybody, even to children. Actually, it was part of the the, the dietary for children. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't seen much in the 1790s where it was condemned as part of the diet. But it does kind of vanish as part of this this kind of crackdown on on, on alcohol. I suppose I'm not sure. Uh, there's nothing in the minutes about. Um, resistance to that to that change specifically to, to the removal of beer um, from meals um, in, in, in terms of does it reform or not or does it return or not I'd have to check the post 1800 um, dietaries for that I, I was supposed to get back to the National Archives uh, last year to, to have a look at the post 1800 um, but that, that would certainly be something we're checking out in terms of you know, attitudes to alcohol um, with, with, with regard to the dietary. And yeah, I have to do more kind of cross-referencing with your work on, on the debtor's prison. I think that could, could be interesting to look at um, a variety of different kind of institutions and the way they dealt with uh, food and the, 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 the freedom 
of, of inmates. I mean, that, that certainly, certainly could be a, a fruitful area of research. I, I suppose I suppose one one difference between your case and and and, and perhaps this, this is where I was going with my, my initial point is is who benefits really from the from the the, the food market um, and there's a clear benefit in in cases of debtors prisons um, because the, because those 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 um, given the contracts to run prisons then subcontracted out or or gave particular favors. Um, to into individuals then, or or even sold sold liquor or, or alcohol themselves to, to those inmates. Whereas I suppose we're looking at a slightly different system in the um, in, in in the case of the House of Industry, or, or or maybe not. Is there is did you have a sense that there are um, profits to be made and uh, um, and favours to be dealt out in in your system? Yeah, definitely. Um, the staff are seem to constantly be engaged in kind of fraudulent activity, making deals with suppliers. And um, because, you know, it's, it's a big contract to get a contract to supply bread or, or other food to the house of industry. So suppliers are kind of eager to make deals with, um, with, with the staff of the house and the governors are constantly engaged in policing the, the staff to make sure that they're not, um, that they're not ripping off the house. And, and several, um, you know, several members of staff are fired um, in the 1780s and or 1770s and 1780s for, for engaging in, in kind of fraud, for taking kickbacks essentially um, from suppliers. So they, they are benefiting um, from that kind of market in goods and the, and the governors are, are, are trying to prevent that as the kind of representatives of the, of the public, I suppose, in making sure that there's uh, no corruption in the house, which they're you know obsessed with, I think. There's another question in here from Shelby Zimmerman about the percentage of the inmates who were in the house for medical relief. I wonder if you speak to the sort of who who were the inmates in that sense, in terms of varieties of yeah. people. Um, it, the, the register for the House of Industry doesn't survive um, for, for Dublin. Um, so we only have kind of, you know, maybe yearly snapshots of who was in the House of Industry. But there does seem to be a, a specific... Um, you know, a significant percentage of the inmates who were there due to, to illness um, old age and things like that. And that becomes increasingly the case, I think, by the, the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century, as it becomes a more specialised institution, focusing on, you know, the variety of hospitals for various ends that, that would emerge in the house of industry complex. So it'd be hard to, to, to give a a percentage in the 18th century. Um, but certainly, you know, there, there, there are a number of surgeons working with the House of Industry, a number of physicians working with the House of Industry. So uh, yeah, a significant percentage are there for uh, forms, of, forms, of medical, uh, forms of medical relief. And again, again, I think that's a fruitful um, avenue of research as well, you know, the, the, the place of medicine in the workhouse. Okay, then a um, question here, just I suppose on the infrastructure, and you just touched on that. Um, Richard Dolan, just wondering if any portions of the House of Industry are still extant. And I wonder, can I just add something else in there? And just curious in terms of when you were showing the, your coloured plan um, and those holes in the centre and the observation practices, is, is this part of an, is this an Irish Benthamite influence, the sort of observing of people, or is this completely separate? <laughs> Again, it's Rumford who suggests that the that they're they're built these these uh, galleries for observing the poor. They they build these um, 
they, they build these area food halls with, with the galleries based on Rumford's suggestion. Um, and yeah, it, the, the relationship between Rumford and Bentham is kind of interesting because I think Rumford is much more loaded in the 1790s than Bentham. And Bentham actually um, republishes some of his workhouse material while uh, Rumford is in Dublin trying to kind of piggyback on, on, on Rumford's success. Um, and he writes, kind of, you know, kind of fan letters to Rumford as well. You know, he's, 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 he's quite admiring Rumford's um, writing. So, yeah, I, I know Bentham usually gets discussed when, you know, people are talking about kind of patterns and observation of the poor and, 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 and discipline of the poor. Um, but I think for this, Rumford is, is a lot more influential. And, he, you know, he, he has some of the same kind of ideas with regard to rewards and punishment for the poor and the importance of these things. Um, so, you know, Rumford is not, you know, particularly original thinker in, in any way. He's kind of borrowing a lot of these, these, these practices, I think. Just on the point about infrastructure, does any of the House of Industries still survive? It presumably migrates into other institutions to some degree. Yeah, no, the, um, there, there's a new, so the original malt house seems to begin to fall down in the 1780s. So they build a new house um, north of the, the old house um, and that eventually mutates into the, the Dublin Union uh, workhouse. Um, but that has been uh, demolished. And there are very few um, elevations of the, the House of Industry. There are a few plans, floor pl plans, as I showed you, um, but, but it's, it's very hard to find images of what they look like. There are a few, maybe 20th century photographs and aerial photographs that, that give you some sense of what it was like in the early 20th century. Um, but um, no, the, 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 the house is, is gone. And there, there are a few remains of some of the structures of the 19th century structures um, or at least there were, <laughs> I haven't been there in a while. Um, you know, some of, I, I think the, the, the prison that Francis Johnson um, designed, I think there's some, some of that survives, but only, only, only some small, most of, it is, uh, most of it is gone, unfortunately. Now, a question here from um, Lawrence Smith about the, whether, wondering about the diet children and whether it differed from adults in the house of industry or was and, and was the diet of children affected by Rumford's reforms? Um, it, it didn't differ significantly it was just smaller quantities as I said they even got they even got the small beer that the uh, that the adults had but again just, just in, in smaller quantities um, and it, it, it was affected by Rumford's plans in that they also were increasingly kind of reliant on, on soup. Soup became the, the, the order of the day for, for, for everybody in, in, in after 1796. And just a question here again from coming back to Martin, to Martin, who's just asking about whether there's any evidence of political engagement on the part of the inhabitants in the 1790s. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good question, Martin. Um, I, I, I would have to say uh, no, um, the evidence we have um, of, of any engagement really is by one of the, the surgeons of the house, uh, William McNevin, um, who was a, a, a United Irishman, um, was uh, condemned by the house, by the, by the governors in the minutes for his political activity. He eventually, I think, left the country and, and, and settled in New York. So um, he's the only, he's the only active Irishman I've been able to connect 
to the to the house. I mean, it, King Street, the King Street area up around where the the house was located was a strong, strongly United Irish area. If you look at um, if you look at you know records of of of, of members of, of members of the United Irishmen, um, that, that area had a quite a strong connection, um, to the United Irishmen. But I haven't found any evidence of um any people in the house engaging in political activity. The, 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 the minutes are quite sparse in 1798 for, for kind of obvious reasons, I suppose. So um, yeah, there, there, there's, there's I, I, little evidence of that. But yeah, I mean, that's obviously um, a, a kind of interesting area. Just uh, any, any, anybody else has questions, do please post them or stick up your virtual hand. Just on that, I suppose, moving forward slightly from 98 into 1989, 1800, is there any, does the change at all during the subsistence crisis of the turn of the century? Is there any response to that in terms of the, super, the sort of dietary content? Yeah, I mean, they do establish at various points um, soup kitchens throughout the city. So in um, 1783-84, soup kitchens are established. Um, Jimmy Kelly has written about written about those, um, and then yeah, towards the end of the century, um, 1800-1801, there are I think four soup kitchens established throughout that are feeding you know thousands of people every day. Um, and again, these are based on, on Rumford's proposals, and um, he had designs for soup kitchens that he had established in Munich, um, and the governors kind of take up those designs and. Um, it's not clear if there were purpose-built soup kitchens established or if they converted other uh, their plans for purpose-built soup kitchens. It's not clear if they were ever built. Um, but certainly, yeah, they were by, by 1800, 1801, and during kind of subsequent uh, subsistence crises in Dublin, they were feeding um, large numbers of people every, every, every day. Um, yeah. Okay, we may, unless there's any last minute, Questions coming in here, we may leave it there. And I think it remains just to thank um, Porrick for an absolutely wonderful paper. I think huge, huge amount of information there and ideas. And I think it would be really exciting to see this project coming to fruition. I think absolutely in terms of the historiography of 18th century institutions as still, I think, very much in its infancy and dominated probably by institutional histories. And there's been some, re some little bits of recent work in the founding hospital, but not much else. Um, so I think that is really that is really encouraging. And just to um and just to alert you all to next week's paper, which has I think at least one small connection um with today's paper. Um and we'll be moving um moving jurisdictions, we're moving to France, where we'll have Mr. David Briscoe from Trinity, who will be talking about the debt of every citizen. The philanthropic career of Claude Clock, Claude, Claude Clockar, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, 1790 to year five. And I know Dave is very interested in issues of poverty in the Bordeaux region, particularly as well. So I suspect there is some comparative thoughts emerging. And so it just remains to thank Porrick again for his superb paper and to all those who, all those of you who have come. And we've again had a very significant audience. And to remind you that you can listen back to previous papers and indeed this one in time on the Long Room Hub website. So thank you all, and we shall draw this session to a close. <laughs> the
hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.